But don't have thoughts and opinions about me. Yeah. <laughs> You're supposed to love Unless me. they're good. Unless they're good. You can tell me good things. Yeah. <laughs> and then if I, like, directly ask for a criticism, you can tell me that. But, like, you don't, you don't have to offer it. Welcome to All My Friends Are English Majors, the podcast where I, a business major, make my friends, almost all English majors, read popular fiction with me. This month we're reading Sally Rooney books. We've made it to the third one. This week we read Beautiful World, Where Are You? A, a divisive work. Uh, <laughs> um, and my guest this month is Jess. Hi, Jess. Hi, Tuck. Let's see. I always feel very hesitant. Like, I need to be asking if anything has changed since we last talked, but Jess and I did just talk for, like, a full 25 minutes on Discord before we started (laughs) recording. We really just love to cluck, 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 cluck. That's the word that I have been using with my roommate, Sarah, to talk about when you, like, just say a bunch of things without really saying anything. (laughs) The girls who dab. <laughs> yes, just clucking, just like back and forth, chirping to each other, which is what we love to do. It's That's called true. female friendship. Yeah. And this is a book about female friendship. Yes. Much more so, I will say, than Conversations with Friends, which on the back of the book, it says it's about the messy boundaries of female friendship, but really it's just about them being gay. This one is actually about the messy boundaries of female friendship. Well, and I also think that, like, this is perhaps more relatable to us as a 25-year-old and 26-year-old, respectively. Like, out of college, actually, like, trying to live life in comparison to reading conversations with friends where, like, they're, like, 21 and, like, still in school and not really thinking about the future, like... I felt very about conversations with friends. I feel about the fact that I'm, like, working in retail with a lot of people who are, like, younger than me. Hmm. Where, like, when people are acting whack, I'm like, like, damn, you're 19. Or, like, damn, you're 21. Whereas, like, the characters in this book, I was like, aw, man. An existential crisis? At 29? (laughs) So I have to look forward to feeling like this for another like five years because they're 29 and 30 or they turn 30 over the course of the book yeah we can look forward to that they don't have a lot of crises about like the new decade they're not like oh my god i'm 30 there is a little bit of like my internal clock is telling me that i've begun shriveling up but like (laughs) I feel like every woman feels like she's shriveling up at different points in her life. I honestly feel less like I'm shriveling up now than I did when I was 21. So do with that what you will. Wow. Women contain multitudes. So true. Let's (laughs) read the summary or the back of the book. Yes. You want me to do it? I have it open. I'm ready. Okay, you got it. Alice, a novelist, meets Felix, who works in a warehouse, and asks him if he'd like to travel to Rome with her. And Dublin, her best friend Eileen, is getting over a breakup and slips back into flirting with Simon, a man she has known since childhood. Alice, Felix, Eileen, and Simon are still young, but life is catching up with them. They desire each other, they delude each other, they get together, they break apart. They have sex, they worry about sex, they worry about their friendships and the world they live in. 
Are they standing in the last lighted room before the darkness, bearing witness to something? Will they find a way to believe in a beautiful world? Oh, Sally. <laughs> that, Why I'm do you sorry. say that? I got, I got re-exhausted reading the inside <laughs> cover. <laughs> because I ended up really enjoying this book. But, like, wow. The inside cover is kind of everything that kind of stinks about this book. What do you mean? Say more. Like, the first time I read this book, it was like a year and a half ago, and I expected it to be as accessible as normal people is, and I read it, and I was like, what the fuck did I just read? And then I read it this time, and I realized, like, how much depth there was to it, but, like, at a surface level read of this book, the front cover, I think, captures what is so exhausting about reading it at a sur- surface level, which is, like, they write each other an email where they're like, I went to the grocery store and was struck by the amount of oppression it took to get this plastic sleeve to have this meat in it for me to have options at the grocery store. Like, Sally. <laughs> Do you feel like that's, like, annoying always? Do you feel like it's annoying, like, in because it's done clumsily? Like, is it, like, that it's pretentious? I think it's that it's pretentious. Like, yeah, it feels very, like, we know there's no ethical consumption under capitalism. But, like, right. as has been discussed in, like, previous months, like, you still have to live in the world that you live in. And if you think too hard about all of the bad things about the world that, like, you did not choose to live in but must live in, like, you can't do anything. Yeah, I kind of, I liked what you said earlier about, like, like, reading that and then immediately being like, girl, shut the fuck up, we are all stuck here, which is what makes it kind of exhausting. But I think that, like... If you are someone who is prone to those types of thoughts, which I would say that I am, it is also exhausting to think those thoughts and to be the type of person who thinks that way. And I think that she's kind of like trying to say that, like she's showing how Eileen and Alice, the two main characters, the ones who are writing the emails back and forth to each other, are kind of like exhausted with themselves. Like they're not... It's not as though they're, like, trying to impress each other with their intellect or trying to, like, say things that no one's ever said before, which is a little bit different from how conversations with friends and, to some extent, normal people are. Like, a lot of the time in that, in those, it feels like the characters are trying to, like, prove that they, like, are unique and special and know something that other people don't know. But I feel like in this one, they're like, I just can't get this out of my fucking head. Like, this is a brain worm that I'm, like, always thinking about the, like, monumental suffering that, like, enables me to live this life that I don't even like that much. Yeah, that makes sense. I also am just thinking about, like, this is probably her most anti-capitalist work. And, like, I think she does, like, have some nuanced things to talk say when she's talking about like I don't know if they're like different types of socialism but like our understanding of the working class and how it has to change and have like a broader definition but I also like I don't know if I think too long about backbreaking labor like getting me my little deli meat 
I'll lose my mind. So I really have to do my my little things that I can do, which are only ordering from Amazon maybe once a year. And uh-huh. like, well, that's my main line in the sand. And I know I'm making a difference. And like things like that. But like there's, you can't, you can't consume anything. At all. Yeah. I think that that's, that's like kind of the, the, the point though. Like, they keep talking about that over and over and then being like, well, there's nothing, like, I don't know what to do with all this knowledge. Like, I'm like living in my life and I have to. I'm like stuck here and I can't not go to the grocery store. And so there's this like fundamental, like mismatch between how you feel that a person should live and how you are sort of like stuck living and there's like the guilt there and there's the shame there and there's also the like frustration with not really knowing what else there is to do besides like I don't know like quitting your job and joining a commune or something like there's not that many options available to a like 29 year old English lit graduate living in Dublin. Like, I just, I don't know. I feel like there's a lot of like internal conflict, even more so in this one than in the other ones, because people, these people are just very, very hung up on like, I know that this life is filled with enormous privilege and I don't even like it that much. (laughs) And I'm not even having a good time but there's like nothing else to do. And I think there's some people who can like put that out of their mind. Like they can be sort of like reminded of the immense like global oppression that is propping up our way of life in the West. And then there are other people who just like really, really cannot move past it. Or at least in certain ones of their friendships, they feel like they're like allowed to speak on that sort of like unspoken dissonance that a lot of people feel all the time. And what I think is cool is that it's not like Eileen and Alice are like talking about this all the time to everyone that they know. They just like know that each other are sort of like the audience for that. And they are often calling each other out for being annoying. Like they'll often like have this like, really long extended like esoteric rant that's like very dramatic about dying for the revolution or (laughs) um how the world lost its instinct for beauty in 1970 when plastics became the like foremost consumer material and then the other one will respond back in the next email and be like were you in a bad mood when you wrote that because that seems a bit dramatic (laughs) Like, you're being a bit morbid. And then the other one will do the same thing. And it's kind of, like, initially, I feel like it's, like, very jarring and annoying. And then as it goes on, I at least developed a little bit of affection for the way that they did that. Yes. I think it's just that first that first email where yeah. Alice, especially, I, I don't know why I'm, like, stuck on the deli meat portion of it all. But, like, <laughs> that first email... Where you have, like, three and a half pages of her talking about global oppression. You're like, what the fuck is this book gonna be? Yeah. But, yeah, I think the emails show us, like, a depth of friendship. Because Sally Rooney writes so little dialogue. Like, 
the depth of friendship that you get from them writing each other emails is what makes this book like genuinely sweet. Yes. Um, I think maybe instead of a two minute summary, because I think it is generally hard to summarize the events of this book in a way that's helpful. Maybe we spend two minutes talking about the structure of the novel and the people yes. involved in it. Mm-hmm. Or did you have thoughts I on think- how to summarize it in two minutes? Had you been have you have you been prepping? No, I I think that the structure would be what I would talk about anyways because I love the structure of this book. Because speak on it. So basically, what the structure is is you have a chapter about. One of the two main characters. So we have Alice, we have Eileen. They are best friends from college. They are living apart from each other. Alice is living in like a small town. It's like three hours from Dublin. And Eileen is living in Dublin. Alice is a like famous novelist. We can kind of like infer that she basically is Sally Rooney. Like at least she like Sally Rooney kind of gives her authorial arc to Alice. So she's written these two, like, widely acclaimed novels that are, like, pretty polarizing, and she has all of these, like, celebrity author engagements she has to go to, and, like, interviews and stuff, and it kind of causes her to have a nervous breakdown, then she moves to the countryside to recuperate. Eileen is working at, like, a low-paying literary magazine job, and she just got broken up with by her boyfriend that she didn't even like that much, but she feels unlovable, which is a theme in Sally Rooney books. And then she's like flirting with her longtime love, Simon. There, That's in Dublin. So what we have is we have a chapter that's describing Alice and what she's doing in her big house she's renting in the countryside. Then we have an email by Alice. And usually like the, the chapter that's describing what's going on, it's written in a very removed third person perspective. Like a lot of the time it will describe the way that the person looks as, as they're doing something as though the narrator doesn't know what's actually going on. So it'll be like, she was scrolling on her phone and then without any perceptible change in emotion, she stops scrolling all of a sudden. Like it's like very, very, very not omniscient. It's a very limited point of view where we don't actually know what's going on. It's almost as though they're being, like, watched by a person in a cafe or something who doesn't know them. So you get that very removed perspective. And then the next chapter is an email that usually, like, describes in some way, like, some of the feelings or thoughts that that character was having while those events were taking place. Then you get a shift to third-person limited point of view of Eileen and then Eileen does the email so it goes Alice third person Alice first person Eileen third person Eileen first person and it just keeps going so you always know what to expect and I personally love that structure because it just satisfies my brain but I also think that it does something really interesting which is like they're not really engaged in that many like um like super exciting things like Alice does go to Rome with kind of a total stranger but even then like it's not written in a particularly interesting way she's there for work she's not really doing that much like stuff but what's really interesting is the contrast between their like banal lives and their really like complex thoughts that they're having about like global politics and 
are we at the end of history and the collapse of Mediterranean civilizations in the late Bronze Age? And it's just like, I think captures what it feels like to be alive in the information age where you're like doing very normal stuff, like washing the dishes. And then you're listening to a podcast that's about like something that has literally nothing to do with you and is like highly specialized and you kind of like are living in your mind instead of in the world. And I feel like they are definitely doing a lot of that. And the structure shows that. Yeah. I think that this is like a very, very modern novel. Like, this book does not work without accepting that they are living in the information age. Do we want to talk about... Let's see. So do you want to get into Eileen and Alice as separate people? Yes. Okay. I was going to start with Alice because I feel like Alice is, like, she has... She's the biggest departure from most Sally Rooney characters like Eileen kind of is Marianne is Francis in a lot of ways but Alice seems like she is much more just Sally Rooney because she like I said is like sort of wrestling with this like newfound fame that she has where she is like I don't know if I'll ever write another another novel I don't know if I even want to like the celebrity machine is deeply fucked up and celebrity novelists don't live in the real world and they like write these richly observed like realistic narratives but that's not what their life is their life is like sitting at linen tablecloths at events where they're getting awards and like complaining about bad reviews and so she just like is very disillusioned with the literary world and has recently had a psychiatric break which we'll talk about a little bit more but she is very, like, deeply unhappy, despite having gotten everything that she ever wanted as a novelist. And she's kind of, like, trying to figure out how to, like, live a different type of life, which is why she, like, moves to the countryside and starts seeing Felix, which, like, the first half to three quarters of Alice's narrative I am like very uncomfortable and like really feel very worried for her and sad for her because I think that it is really like it seems terrifying the idea of getting everything that you like wanted and dreamt of and then hating it because then what do you do you know well and I am worried for her partially because of her relationship with Felix Like, Felix is, like, I don't know if Felix is a bad person, but he is, like, deeply a bad partner. And, like, (laughs) both of them are, like, fairly insecure and lash out at one another because of it. And also, like, generally, they, like, I don't know, like, they go to Rome together, right? And Felix like, kind of hangs out with her, but not really, and then, like, they've had, like, very few conversations with each other, and suddenly he, like, comes into her bedroom as, and uh, into her bedroom and is, like, asking her about her sexual proclivities, and then they, like, have sex, and it's, like, you guys don't even like each other. Yeah. Like, 
I, Sally, I don't know why you think that I'm going to root for couples or even, like, want to read about couples if you don't give me any reason to believe that they are two people who care for one another. Well, Alice talks about to Eileen, she's like, I don't know what's going on with me and Felix. I, my relationship with him is formless and experimental because it's not clear. Like, they go to Rome together, well, they meet on Tinder, and then they go to Rome together without having slept with each other or having had, like, a successful date even. Like, their first date is bad, and then they, like, happen to see each other, and they happen to be like, what if you come to Rome with me? Which is, like, weird. And then Alice is like, I'm doing this thing where I'm, like, experimenting with a type of relationship that, like, doesn't have the the normal boundaries of, like, if you're in a relationship, these are the norms that follow with that. If you're a, in a friendship, these are the norms that follow with that. And so there's, like, more freedom if you don't have any, like, obligations to each other or any scripts to follow. And she's, like, talking about this a lot in an, an email when they're in Rome. She's like, this is just this, like, really, like, intimate thing in a way because we aren't following a script. We're, like, figuring it out. Which reminds me a little bit of Francis and Bobby in Conversations with Friends, but it's very deeply different because, like you said, there's no, like, proof that they can even have a conversation, really. Um, it's kind of like, why, Alice, what are you, why are you doing this to yourself? It, like, feels a little bit self-injurious. And then Eileen is like, why, I don't understand. Why are you being coy about this? This is weird. And then Alice is like, actually, I think I'm in love with him. Like, so soon. And it's so, like, like, apropos of nothing. Of nothing. Truly of nothing. Well, and also, like, I just, from, like, a personal safety point of view, like, if my friend had had a psychiatric break and then was like, me and this guy I just met are gonna go to Rome together... No, I can't. No, I can't see you when I stop through town to go to Dublin. Like, sorry. I would be like, hey, great point. (laughs) Who is that guy? And do I need to come help you? And like, how, how do I get to you? And I think sometimes, like, maybe they're just suffering from like Irish politeness where they're like, well, she told me not to come, so I'm not going to come. But like, if your friend who has recently gotten out of a psychiatric pop hospital is exhibiting erratic behaviors, yeah. I think maybe the like the like niceties of polite society need to go out the window a little bit. Yeah, you show up. <laughs> you you show up. <laughs> you pull up. Yeah, I mean, Eileen, like, says in the email, she's like, it's kind of weird to me that you, like, said that you were going to take a break and then here you are. And she talks to Simon about it, too. She's like, I don't understand why she's doing this. And she's kind of, like, it's very clear that she's mad at her, but she doesn't actually say anything. Which makes sense, because Alice, like, did not really communicate with Eileen when she was having a psychiatric breakdown, which we find out, like, much later in the book. But initially, it kind of seems like Eileen's, like, being a little bit judgmental. But if you think about it from Eileen's perspective, like, that is so concerning like have yeah i i don't know and also felix oh this i'm gonna i'm gonna speak on this actually okay i made a little note on 
the back of the envelope for my brother's wedding invitation because I had to write this down and I didn't have the outline open. I think that there's a lot of like genre theory going on here. So like, are you familiar with the idea of genre theory? Do you know what that means? No, but I'd love to know. So it's basically like, and I might be butchering this. So like, if there's anyone else who has a uh, master's in English who listens to this podcast, do not contact me. I don't want to be correct. <laughs> <laughs> but like, one way of understanding it, from my understanding, is that um, genre is in itself this like set of expectations, right? So like, we have these certain things, and like in in a lot of ways, Sally Rooney sort of, like, exists as, like, a genre of herself. Like, there are other writers who are similar to her, but she kind of, like, has her own um, style, and therefore are these genre conventions that sort of, like, exist only to her. Um, but if you think about, like, with a horror movie, that's always a really good example of genre. Like, there's certain things, there's certain settings, there's certain character types, there's certain, like, beats in the narrative that get hit because of the genre that it is. So, like, in every horror movie, you have, like, someone who's, like, going about their everyday life, and then something horrific happens to them, and then it, like, unfolds as this, like, larger and larger scary phenomenon. Like, you kind of know without even being told by the narrative that something bad is going to happen because you know what kind of movie you sat down to watch, right? Yeah. Same thing is true of, like, a romance novel. You just have these, like, without even thinking about it, these, like, unconscious beliefs about, like, what's going to happen, what's definitely not going to happen, like, what can't happen. So, like, genre is a set of expectations. And in a Sally Rooney book... There's a set of expectations where, like, the people will probably have, like, cryptic conversations with each other, and they'll probably go away on holiday, and they'll, like, have internal, like, anxieties and be very neurotic and not communicate well, and then they'll communicate, and then it will be great, and they will, like, realize that love is more important than whatever, like internal drama they had going on but if you look at Felix if you step outside of the genre for a little bit and you like look at a lot of the stuff that we hear about Felix you could absolutely see their relationship going a very very different way so for instance you see how he is avoiding calls from his brother and you don't really know why so like Damien is trying to call him and call him and call him and we don't know why Felix talks about how he, like, got a girl pregnant when he was, like, 15 and she was 14, and he, like, feels bad about it, but he's, like, I might be just, like, a fucked up kind of person. He, like, flirts with Simon a bunch. He, it's clear that he, like, owes money to a bunch of different people around town. Right after Alice tells him that he loves, that she loves him, he asks her about how much money she has because it's clear from like how big her house is that she's wealthy and also from like how famous she is. But like literally right after she says, I'm in love with you. He says like, so how much money do you make? And if you're not in the Sally Rooney genre, you're like, Oh, he's going to fuck her up. Like he's going to steal her money because he's super shady. Like, why is he not answering calls from his brother? Like, who is this person? Why does he have this negative reputation? Like, he has all these debts. He's going to resolve them by scamming Alice. 
But because we're in a Sally Rooney novel, we kind of know that that's not going to happen because that never happens. Like, you get trained how to read a certain type of novel from reading it a bunch. So if, like, if this is the first book of hers you've ever read, you might be, like, very skeptical of Felix in a way that you aren't if you are, like, both of us coming at it having read other Rooney books. You know? I hadn't thought about that at all. But, yeah, like... I don't like him because it doesn't seem like either of them like each other, not because I'm worried that he's a criminal, but, like, he's a criminal. Like, (laughs) he also keeps being like, I'm a bad person, and then he tells her two bad things he's done, but, like, through other conversations with other people and the sort of things that happen to him while he's around town, like, yeah, oh my god. Like, yeah, he's definitely, like, some sort of petty criminal. Right. And we, and and there's like some aspects of that that's like class related. Like there's certain things about him that like we're meant to understand are like due to him actually being like working class in the like subcultural sense. Whereas the rest of these people who are in the novel are like highly educated, like Oxford grads who like have these like, knowledge profession jobs, and Felix is the only, like, working class person, he, like, works in a warehouse, and so there's certain things about him that are, like, quote-unquote rough around the edges, and he's, like, always lived in this, like, small rural town and stuff like that, and so, like, we have to be careful about not being suspicious of him just because he is, like, from that background, but there are a lot of things that you can kind of be like, uh, I would be quite nervous like people make jokes about how he's going to like be with her for her money throughout the whole book but because we are like well-trained Rooney readers we're never like oh that would actually happen there we just kind of at least what I expected was that like Alice might hear that and then like get that in her head and worry about that and then that might be like the cause of the big miscommunication trip that they have which doesn't really end up happening, but that's, like, the extent to which I thought that that anything would go on. If this was a different type of book, then I think that a lot of the, like, the seeds are there for something very different to happen between them. Oh, Jess, that makes so much sense. You are, you are right. You needed to be allowed to cook on this one. <laughs> I did, I wrote in the, in the outline, I don't know how to shorten my thoughts about this, so let me cook. I'm just gonna talk. <laughs> no, you but didn't need to cook. It really is very funny how, like, Alice talks about how in the contemporary novel, like, the only thing that ever happens is people worry about, quote, breaking up and staying together, end quote. And she kind of is criticizing herself, but like, even more so Sally Rooney, I think, is criticizing herself because she's like, even though I'm, like, trying to write about class conflict, really what I'm writing about is people breaking up and staying together. Well, and, like, this book specifically, the relationships in this book, you, you're reading it partially. I think that I kept reading it the first time because I kept waiting for her to, like, give me a reason to root for Alice and Felix. Like, I feel like every time I turned the page, I was like, okay, this is going to be the page where one of them actually does something nice for the other. 
<laughs> this is this is going to be the page where like they have a conversation that makes me understand why they have some sort of depth of feeling for one another. And it like never happens except right at the end when Eileen and Alice have had their big friend fight. And Felix, who has meddled the whole time that Eileen and Simon are there, he has, like, gone up to Eileen while she's by herself and been like, why didn't you come visit sooner? And he's gone up to Simon when he's by himself and been like, what's going on with you and Eileen? You guys seem weird. (laughs) Like, he's done all of this stuff, but finally when Eileen and Alice have their big fight and Alice is basically like, I, like, I, she kind of saying, like, I would rather die than continue to hurt people, but I would also rather die than try to figure out where my spot in the world is. And Felix is basically like, eh, it'll pass. Like. Well, he's like, he's like, I too have wanted to die, and then I didn't, and then I was glad I didn't. Yeah. And, like, essentially... It will pass, you will live through it, and then, like, you will be glad you lived through it, and you will, like, like, I have had hard times, you are having a hard time, like, someday we are, like, both going to have hard times again, but, like, I think that he was essentially saying, like, I see you and understand you, which is the the only time we see that happen in this book for Alice, for someone... For him to say, like, I see you and understand you. The early parts of the book, you're like, shut up. (laughs) Like, yeah, either talk to each other or don't talk to each other. But don't just, like, sit around and be mean. Like, what's the fucking point? They are literally so mean to each other. Like, kind of shockingly so. Yeah, like, when Alice tells him that that she loves him, I can never get those pronouns right. I say it wrong every single time. He, like, is like, how come you don't have any friends? Like, literally. Like, he, it's like, do you fall in love easily? It doesn't seem like you've been loved that much. Like, you don't have any friends. <laughs> and it's, like, comically cruel. Like, I read that, and I was, I forgot that that happened in this book. Because I read it again, and I was like, ugh. Prison. <laughs> You're being so mean. <laughs> well, and like, he kind of plays it off as like being awkward. And then he's also like, well, I just think that I think you're better than me and you think you're better than me. And that makes me like have a hard time knowing what to say to you sometimes because I just like don't like that feeling. Okay, but like yeah. you created that feeling. <laughs> He does talk all the time about, like, feeling intimidated by her and feeling like she thinks that she's above him, which she never, ever, like, has that thought. And I think that she is a little bit, like, abrasive just because that's how she is. She just has big feelings, big opinions and stuff. Yeah. And he feels very, like, threatened by that, which is a little bit, like, I don't know about that. But he, like, yeah, and then she, like, when she says he she loves him, he, like, thinks that she's, like, trying to do another power move to try and, like, get more power over him by, like, being the one who sort of, like, has more feelings, like, more depth of feeling in the relationship. Therefore, like, she has the upper hand. Like, she has the moral high ground. And he's, like... 
you just keep like beating me basically like it seems like they're like in this like deep power struggle that neither of them really understand and then when she says she loves him he feels like she's like one and so he has to lash out at her and it's really upsetting to read like I don't know why I don't know what it is about my personal experience that has like that makes that really like upsetting to me I don't feel like I've ever been in a relationship like this but when I read it I was like upset (laughs) no I get that it like I think that Sally made saying I love you seem like it is like the least vulnerable position and also the most vulnerable position at the same time. Like, I said this about maybe conversations with friends. Like, where, when is Sally going to show people falling in love? Like, instead of (laughs) just, like, saying I love you. Because, like, I, like, saying I love you is vulnerable. And it's brave. And, like... Yeah. Like, this was another, essentially, like... It's almost like she said it against her will, and he received it against his will. Like... Yeah, that's a good point. So, is that love or what? Because to me, it's not. Yeah. And I think that it's it's probably good that when we get to the end of this book, when, when Sally kind of, like, makes her case for why, like, love and care are, like, the most ordinary and good things that people do, that it's Eileen talking about Simon who's writing that instead of Alice talking about Felix who's writing that. Because I really do believe in Eileen and Simon's case that they, like, deeply love each other, and you can see it throughout the whole thing. And there's a lot of, like, really beautiful passages about like, not only them, like, growing up together and their childhood together, but also, like, different stages of their, like, adult friendship, where you really are, like, I see these people loving each other, and it, like, feels like it matters. They do a good job of caring for each other, both, like, physically and mentally, and some, I think, I think something that Sally does well, especially with Eileen and Simon's relationship, is showing that sometimes physical care is mental care. Like, when you have had a really, really long and tiring day, it is not so much the act of making dinner that is going to tire you out. It is the act of having to care for yourself for a couple more hours before you get to rest. And, like, I think that both Simon and Eileen... Eileen has a little bit of what-am-I-doing-for-you disease, which I have a little bit. Especially Hmm. because, like, I work a lot more hours than Sam, and I make a lot less money than Sam. (laughs) And so sometimes I'm like, well, why am I even here? Like, what are, what are you, what am I doing for you besides, like, being a burden? (laughs) Which, like, he does not make me feel like a burden, but it is, like, I do. Sometimes I feel like we don't have enough empathy for the, like, marriages of the 50s and 60s because, like, women, like, weren't really working, but they were doing all this housework and, like, like, there has never been such a thing as an equal partnership. And I think to, like, pretend that equal partnership, like, striving for equal partnership in a relationship is important, but it is never going to exist. 
Yeah. Like, all you can do is, like, care for each other in the ways that are accessible to to you. Recently, against my will, I watched a Brene Brown video. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. And she Solid was talking start. about that. <laughs> she was talking about <laughs> Bound and gagged. I watched Brene Brown talk about this. <laughs> she was saying how, like, a relationship, like, in theory should be 50-50. Like, everybody always says that. But, like, what does that actually look like? Realistically, what that looks like is, like, averaged out over a lifetime 50-50 maybe. But, like, on a daily basis, what she and her husband do is, like, say directly to each other, like, I have 20 today. Or, like, I have 60 today. Like, I can pick up your slack if you have 40. Like, they, like, make it very clear what they've got, what they don't got, and, like, if they both don't got it, then they have, like, a, they, like, literally sit down at the table and are, like, let's make a plan for how to be kind to each other, even though we both don't really got it right now. And the whole, like, thrust of this video, which was, like, a minute long, it was on TikTok, was <laughs> her just basically saying, like, everyone always says early is 50-50, but, like, that doesn't mean that every person always has their full 50 to give. And where people run into trouble is when they are, like, expecting it to always be 50-50, and then they, like, grow to resent their partner for only being able to give, like, 30. And even if they could go the full, like, 70 to make up the slack, they, like, resent it, and then it kind of, like, feels as though the push and pull is not pushing or not pulling. You're just kind of, like, um, in a really unhealthy space and I thought that that was interesting I feel like I would not be able to actually like give numbers to no how I was feeling like in frizzy warm-ups whenever they're like run 60 percent I'm like how I don't know how to calibrate <laughs> that <laughs> no I really feel like I'm like okay I'm jogging I'm jogging faster I'm doing a build-up and I'm sprinting like, that's kind of how I have it in my head. But Yeah, I don't no, think in percentages. <laughs> I just don't. I, I think that, unfortunately, the Sally Rooney characters would really benefit from, like, Brene Brown-style self-help. Because I think... <laughs> well, I think that they are, like, kind of... They're only self-aware about their flaws... Yeah. And very burdened them by them. Kind of like, kind of like when people, now this is not a read on you, Jess, saying it early. (laughs) Like when people are obsessed with the Enneagram and like excuse themselves due to the way that they are because of like Mm. one of the better personality tests, but still a personality test. Like, yeah. Like, I think that Sally Rooney characters fall a little bit into this is just how I am. And like, well, if you know it, adjust or attempt (laughs) to adjust or like watch yourself doing it. And instead of just being like, that's how I am, like even apologizing faster or seeing that you did something and then being like, oh, shoot, like, I have really been working on that. I'm still working on it. I'm sorry I said that. I'm sorry I did that. 
or to themselves thinking like when Eileen is basically like I am useless and everyone has to take care of me all the time like what I guess what I'm saying and what I've said for all of these books is I would really love for some Sally Rooney women to go to therapy Uh because I think a therapist would be like I don't know Eileen like you have a job you have a life, you have friends who clearly love and cherish you, perhaps, like, we need to figure out how to, a way to, like, build kinder kinder thought patterns for ourselves. But instead, she just has to, like, get broken up with, and then break up with, and then get back together with Simon three or four times over the course of the book before he's like, I want to take care of you because I love you, the same way you want to be with me because you love me. Yeah. And she can barely hear it. Right. I, the, in the last bit, the last chapter of the novel, she has a part where she kind of like gets into that, Eileen does, and I wrote it down on the back of my envelope because I really liked it. Because I think that I, more than perhaps, I think it is fair to say, I fall prey to that impulse more than you do. I think that you have a more pragmatic just, like, existence than I do. (laughs) And so, like, it's much easier for you to, like, identify an unhelpful thought pattern and be like, damn, let me fix that. (laughs) Whereas, for some of us, it just, like, doesn't feel that simple. And, like, the idea of personality, sort of, like, being this thing that, like, dooms you to repeat the same mistakes over and over, I think is, like, really, really, for some people, it's kind of a plague, and for me, I think in the past has been a plague, and so I wrote this part down because I thought that it was really good. Eileen is talking about being with Simon. She's been with Simon for, like, 18 months at this point. We're, like, in epilogue vibes, and she says, I thought it would be the same as everything else in my life, difficult and sad, because I was a difficult and sad person. But that's not what I am anymore, if I ever was. And life is more changeable than I thought. I mean, a life can be miserable for a long time and then later happy. It's not just one thing or the other. It doesn't get fixed into a groove called personality and then run along that way until the end. And then she goes on talking about how, like, what she does now with her life is she goes to work and she comes home and she makes dinner and her and Simon eat it while they watch the news. And then they scroll through all the trailers on the streaming services and don't choose anything. And then they fall asleep. And she wakes up and she feels, like, happier than she's ever felt. Because she lives with someone she loves and respects, who loves and respects her. And I think that that paragraph about, like, I thought things with Simon would be difficult and sad because I was a difficult and sad person. I really feel like that is profoundly self-aware and also kind of like speaks to how all of the Sally Rooney characters kind of act where they like see the the seed of something good in someone else and see like that they could really love them and really care for them but they're like because I am a difficult and sad person like this will never happen but as she says like life is more changeable than that and like people are more changeable than that we can be We can have neuroplasticity, we can change, and also, like, the people that we know who love us can see things in us that we don't see in ourselves, or that we stubbornly refuse to see in ourselves because we're, like, so 
addicted to our own misery. And I just think that that, I don't know, I just really liked that. No, I saw some stuff online that basically said that they felt the epilogue was like a cop-out. But Boo. I... That... That is... I think the way the book should end. We should get to see these women who are going through a time of... As I guess we all are all the time. Boo. Going through a time of, like, growth and turmoil and interpersonal conflict. And, like, we get to see them on the other side of it. And I don't think that it would feel as good for it to be a month along as it is to see it be 18 months along. Because in the time we spend in this book, we spend, like, what? Like, vaguely a year with these characters? Maybe, like, six months? And in that time, like, there are, like, multiple breakup and makeups. It's really nice to see them, like... 18 months down the road, both being like, I am in this fulfilling, happy relationship where I look back at who I was 18 months ago and I'm kind of shocked and excited at the person that I get to be now. Yeah. Which is a sweet thought. And like something exciting. And I don't know if people wanted it to be like more literary and sad, but like... (laughs) There is nothing wrong with a happy ending. And in the other two Sally Rooney books, we get happy endings that are a little more literary and a little more sad. Or at least a little more, like, deeply, deeply... Like, it kind of makes you feel perhaps a little more thoughtful because it ends on one person's point of view. Mm -hmm. But, like, in this one, like, all we really get to see is what we've... The the best part of this book is, which is a friendship between two women. And... Also, I think that literary and sad do not have to be, like, so closely intertwined. Sometimes literature is sad for reasons that are, like, not particularly smart or interesting. Like, to be sad is not inherently, like, smarter or more interesting than being happy. And, like, choosing to be happy and choosing to care about someone and to respect them and to take care of them And to, like, willingly bring a child into a world that, like, we don't know what's going to happen next, I think is brave and even good. And if literature is only about, like, being sad, then I don't even like it, I'll bravely say. (laughs) I think that sometimes there is this idea around emotion that only feeling negative emotion can be big and different and literary and only people who are like particularly complex have the ability to like absorb those things from a media perspective but like you don't have to be the smartest person in the world to understand that happy is happy and sad is sad. And you don't have to be the smartest person into the, in the world to understand that like there is depth to all emotion, like not just negative emotion. Yeah. Can I read a quote that kind of gets to that point? Yeah. So when Eileen and Alice like finally meet each other, and finally meet each other. They finally see each other after a long absence. Um, they 
Eileen and Simon arrive at the train station in, I don't remember what town it is. I don't know. Do they? But, I don't really know if they literally ever tell us. Yeah, I don't know. Some bumfuck town, I don't know, by the sea where it's cold and they wear woolen jumpers, etc. Um, they ride the train over there and there's this like third person, like very, very removed tone, like description of them hugging. And I just, I think the joy of it is delicious. It says, were they aware in the intensity of their embrace of something slightly ridiculous about this tableau? Something almost comical, as someone nearly sneezed violently into a crumpled tissue, as a dirty, discarded plastic bottle scuttled along the platform under a breath of wind, as a mechanized billboard on, on the station wall rotated from an advertisement for hair products to an advertisement for car insurance, as life in its ordinariness and even ugly vulgarity imposed itself everywhere all around them. Or were they in this moment unaware, or something more than unaware? Were they somehow invulnerable to, untouched by, vulgarity and ugliness, glancing for a moment into something deeper, something concealed beneath the surface of life, not unreality, but a hidden reality, the presence at all times, in all places, of a beautiful world? And it's because they're hugging. Like, yeah. they're just hugging, and they have their eyes, like, right before this, it talks about, like, their eyes are, like, like, intensely shut, like, they're just, like, so involved in each other, and so, like, involved in how much they love each other, and how much they have all these complicated feelings towards each other, like, they're both kind of mad at each other at this time, but they love each other, and that's, like, really deep and true, and are all around them, you see all of these things that are, like, in some way related to the stuff of their emails, like, the plastic, the consumerism, the, like, vulgarity and ugliness and ordinariness of life in the 21st century. And because of, like, the intensity of their embrace, they're, like, invulnerable to it. Because there's, like, something deeper and perhaps hidden, but still there, that is good. And I think that that's, like, really, really sort of the, like, humming frequency that's like under the whole book which is why again everybody on goodreads is pissing me off because they don't seem to get it i also think this kind of goes back to what i texted you about which was what i think the whole book is around about and like something that i think about a lot just in like my place in the world is like Every single person here in the whole world, even the people who are really famous, have a small life that feels very, very big to them. And the way that Sally writes about, in the third person chapters, it's very much, it's very removed, but it's all about this one person. And, like, the way that life is essentially moving around them, it kind of feels like, um, oh, like every single third person essay or chapter is when like the part of a rom-com where everyone's at the airport they're like all trying to catch each other <laughs> at the airport and like one person is standing still looking at the arrivals board and the whole rest of the airport is moving around them until the person that loves them sees them that's mm. kind of what 
all of these third-person chapters feel like is the world is not moving in orbit around this one person because it's very clear that, like, the world does not revolve around these characters, but their worlds revolve around these characters that, like, everything is kind of, like, moving past, but everyone holds a very specific place in the world. Yeah. And maybe, like, the meaning of life on Earth, as they say a couple times, is just to live and to be with other people. Well, and I also like, um... I was also going to read the quote in one of the emails that felt like maybe Eileen was starting to figure out, like, what happiness meant to her and, like, um, um, she was starting to talk about how she, like, thinks maybe she'll leave nothing on the earth to be remembered by, um, and that, like, Maybe that's better. She says, it makes me feel that rather than worrying and theorizing about the state of the world, which helps no one, I should put my energy into living and being happy. When I try to picture for myself what a happy life might look like, the picture hasn't changed much since I was a child. A house with flowers and trees around it and a river nearby and a room full of books and someone there to love me, that's all. Just to make a home there and to care for my parents when they're old older never to move never to board a plane again just to live quietly and then be buried in the earth what else is life for but even that seems so beyond me that it's like a dream completely unrelated to anything in reality like that's emily tucker core that (laughs) i think (laughs) jess i think when i read this book two years ago i sent a picture of that page to you yeah no i remember that (laughs) (laughs) Like, that is so deeply Emily Tucker Court. Like, you are always talking about having a having a little house with flowers and trees. And I think that it's really, like, nice and sweet that I can, like, read a description like that of, like, something that, like, generally seems appealing to a lot of people. But, like, I specifically, when I read that, I think of you. Like, I'm like, this is my friend Emily Tucker's dream. I mean, do we want to talk in, about specifically Eileen and Alice's friendship at the end of the book? Yeah. So they get into like a knockdown, drag out, like mean friend fight. The kind of friend fight that you can really only have if there is like a real depth of love for one another. Because I think that you yeah. can really only hurt someone that badly if you love them and they love you very deeply. And they get in this big fight and they kind of go back to their respective corners of the house and their partners respectively, like, talk them down a little bit. And, like, they go to each other and they hug each other and they just sit together on the stairs. And they, there's this section that feels very accessible to me as someone who, like, had very deep friendships in college that have continued past it 
And it says, for a time they sat there on the stairs, not speaking, or speaking absently about things that had happened a long time ago, silly arguments they'd had, people they used to know, things they had laughed about together, old conversations repeated many times before. Then quiet again for a little while. I just want everything to be like it was, Eileen said, and for us to be young again and live near each other and nothing to be different. Alice was smiling sadly, but if things are different, can we still be friends, she asked. Eileen put her arm around Alice's shoulders. If you weren't my friend, I wouldn't know who I was. She said. Alice rested her face in Eileen's arm, closing her eyes. No, she agreed. I wouldn't know who I was either. And for a while, and actually for a while, I didn't. Which I think is like them acknowledging that the break in their friendship because of Alice's psychiatric stay and like unwillingness to talk to Eileen about it, like that's probably the most they're ever going to acknowledge it. Yeah. And that's okay. Because, like, if you start really digging in on it, like, they come very close to in the argument, like, saying things that they are, like, not going to be able to take back and forgive and make space for. But, like... Yeah. I put in the outline that, like, deep and lasting friendship involves hurting one another and forgiving one another. Like, the perfect friendship with no fighting doesn't exist, just like the perfect romantic relationship with fighting doesn't exist, with no fighting doesn't exist. Like, yeah, they, I just felt very, like, comforted and seen by the idea of just, like, sitting quietly in a corner with your closest friend talking about nothing. Mm-hmm. Like, we talk about the same things over and over again, and it is always <laughs> interesting, and it uh, is always fun, and it is always, like, like very fulfilling to my heart to like get to talk to someone who uh, we just like pick up the conversation where it left off yeah and like that paragraph right there is them like picking up a decades-long conversation just where it left off yeah and like being willing to apologize to each other without like getting into it again like I feel like you can only do that with someone that you, like, deeply trust. Like, you can be like, <laughs> like, I can be like, hey, Tucker, I'm sorry that I hit you in the head with that frisbee in the backyard during quarantine that one time. <laughs> oh, God, I was not doing well. <laughs> <laughs> and I can just, like, say that, and we can, like, laugh about how mad you were at me and how defensive I was, and, like, not have to like get into it again because we know each other and we know that we love each other and it doesn't have to be like this like fresh wound for the rest of our lives that we like and obviously that's not like the serious like that's not our big serious fight or like any one of our big serious fights but like I do think that there's something like really precious about like having a long time friendship where you both know that there are certain things that you like try not to say not because you feel like you can't say them but because you feel like you don't need to and there's like certain things that you can joke about and there's certain things that are just like that's over and done and we are going to be friends for the rest of our lives and we don't have to talk about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think that, 
like this book does a really good job of showing something that I think you learn the older you get, which is that like forgiveness is not a binary. Like you are not mm-hmm. either living like in a state of forgiveness or in a state of not being forgiven. Like there's no like the concept of like erasing a hurt through forgiveness, I think starts to disappear a little more when you're older. Like it like when something wounds you emotionally, you have to scab and heal and scar the same way that you have to when you have a cut on your hand. And like this does a good job, I think, of showing like poking at a wound or at this point in their friendship argument, like ripping a scab off. Yeah. And like this, like, that was them starting to scab over a wound that, like, like, Eileen isn't going to forget that Alice hurt her like that. But she is, like, moving through that hurt with, like, love and care and affection for this person who is always going to be in her life. Right. And, like, recognizing that, like, as they say, hurt people hurt people. Like, <laughs> Alice was, like, she did, like, sort of, like, forget who she was. And like, lost track of herself a little bit, and that that was, like, the source of the hurt. It's not, like, out of malice or anything. Like, you don't have to, like, fully understand exactly what someone is going through in order to, like, forgive them by saying, like, I know that you were suffering, and we don't have to, like, dwell on it anymore. And I think that, like, that is a really, like, gracious posture to take. To be able to say, like, you caused me pain, but I know that it was because you already were in pain. And so, like, by me sort of, like, absorbing that, like, absorbing what you have done to me, I am, like, trying to, in a way, like, alleviate the pain that it even came from. And I think that Alice, like, is doing a lot better as a result of Eileen being able to, like, forgive her and, like, move forward with her. And you see that in, like, the thing that you read about, like, if we weren't friends, I wouldn't know who I was. And she's like, I didn't for a little bit. And Eileen being there for her kind of, like, helps her with that. And there are some people in the world, myself is one of them, who, like, when they're doing badly, one of the first things that they do is become less reachable to their friends, which is like obviously not good, but like it's an impulse that a lot of people have. And I think that Alice like retreating from Eileen in large part, probably because she like didn't, she like knew that Eileen would know and see how much she was like suffering. And she didn't want Eileen to like be there for that. It's like going off. It's like a cat going off alone under the porch to die like just being like I can't you know I can't be seen like this not by the person that I love and respect the most in the world yeah and I think that that is like a really really human experience and I like that they really like have it out about it and it's never like dismissed but at the same time it's not like harped on I think if Sally Rooney had tried to, like, write this earlier in her career, she would have spent a lot more time, like, really diving into and describing the suffering 
And I really think that it, like, shows her maturity as a writer and a person to be like, no, actually suffering is not the most interesting thing to me anymore. Like, goodness and happiness is. Yeah. And, like, I think that she has spent all three of her books trying to figure out how to, like, describe depth of care and how to care for others and how to care for yourself. And I think that she is, like, pretty successful in this book at showing those things in, like, a relatively healthy way. Like, Felix... Jury's real out on Felix. (laughs) Like, it's very strange. That, I think, is the only thing that in the epilogue I'm kind of like, really? Like, they're still together? Yeah, I wish that they hadn't been. Because I also feel like that would be a little bit, like, going back to genre theory. Like, when a book is mostly concerned with a relationship and it ends with them not together, then that, like, really signifies a lot of things to the reader. And when it ends with them together, even if, like, we can imagine them breaking up later, like, after the epilogue ends, if it ends with them together, then that kind of tells us retrospectively that everything that happened in the course of the novel is good because it ends with them together. And that, to us, is, like, a quote-unquote happy ending. But I don't know about all that. I think Felix is funny, but I don't think he's, like... I don't know. I just don't... I'm I'm not convinced. Here's what I'll say. If you won't give me Connell and Marianne, I don't want Felix <laughs> and Alice. Like... Like, that's really how I feel. Although, like, the conversation that Felix has with Alice in the kitchen when she is, like, really, really, really upset about her fight with Eileen, like, is good. He says the right things. But it doesn't negate the fact that he is, like, weirdly cruel to her the entire rest of the book. Right. And there's, like, a little passage in the epilogue where it talks about how, like, a bunch of people in, like, like, online are really hung up on the fact that her boyfriend hasn't read her books. And there's, like, tweets that are, like, she deserves better. And there she talks a lot in her email in the epilogue about, like, how weird the parasocial relationships are with, like, people who have read her novels and think that they, like, they presume to know her and know what's best for her. And, like, she likes that Felix hasn't read her novels and doesn't really have interest in it. Which I would say, if I ever write a novel... I don't want Diego to read it because I feel like that would be, like, so embarrassing. Like, if you think saying I love you is vulnerable, like... (laughs) I think that I just would feel like it, like, it would be... It's like when you... I don't know. I feel this way a little bit when I, like, cook a new recipe that I'm, like, a little bit uncertain about but I like tried really really hard yeah when I am really like in the kitchen for hours trying something new or trying a series of new things and then I like give it to him to try I like feel almost like unbearably vulnerable because I'm like if you I I want you to like it but also if you don't like it I don't want you to feel like you can't tell me that you don't like it 
And you being like nervous to tell me that you don't like it is almost worse than you just telling me that you don't like it. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. Yeah. Feeling like I'm like making him uncomfortable by putting him the pressure on him to like it would stress me out. Like I would just be so miserable. Like I think if I ever wrote a book, I would be like, but I don't, would I be able to keep it from him? No. <laughs> and I don't think that he would not read it. Like, I think if I told him not to read it, he would like really try and convince me to let him. But I just would feel so like upset by the prospect of him, like thinking about it in his head and like trying to figure out how to tell me that he didn't like it. It would just make me want to die. Yeah. Seems horrible. Yeah, that does seem horrible. And so maybe for Alice, like, part of what Felix offers her is a, like, human relationship that doesn't have to do with her, like, literary achievements. Yeah, I think that's fair. Like, it is, as much as it is, like, really nice to have a boyfriend who plays Frisbee because I can, like, talk to him about all of it. It does seem to some people to be, like, maybe good to have a boyfriend who doesn't play Frisbee, because he can really just be like, good job, babe. (laughs) Or, like, you'll get him next time, tiger. Like, there's no... Like, it's just like, I'm showing up to this thing that you love because I love you. Yeah. And there's no, like, you never have to worry about them secretly kind of, like, having to figure out what they want to tell you and what they don't want to tell you. And I think that we both are with people who are, like, very honest. Yeah. And who have, who usually have criticisms. We were talking about that right before we started recording about, like, how often they will speak their truth. (laughs) (laughs) And, like, I love that. I think that that's a great quality. I think honesty is really important. And I think having, like, the, like, having your brain on enough to, like, have thoughts and opinions about things all the time is great. But don't have thoughts and opinions about me. (laughs) You're supposed to love me. Unless they're good. Unless they're good. You can tell me good things. Yeah. (laughs) And then if I, like, directly ask for a criticism, you can tell me that. But, like, you don't, you don't have to offer it. Yeah. Yeah. I'm actually, I'm actually so good. That's fine. I'm fine. No, yeah, thank you. Like, sorry, I will not. I'm not accepting callers today. Like, <laughs> come back tomorrow. Yeah, I. There was one point, like early on in my relationship with Diego, where he like said something about a like frisbee decision that I made, and I think it was something. He said something like, "Um, yeah, like I kind of like expected." a better choice from you there. And I was like, get out of my house. Yeah, I don't know why you feel like you're allowed to say that to me. That was brave of you, actually. Yeah. And it wasn't even like, like, I had literally asked. Like, I had been like, like, oh my god. that That didn't look good at all. Like, that was a really bad choice for me. And he was like, yeah, I was expecting you to, like, maybe take a higher percentage throw. And I was like, well, actually, what would you know about higher percentage throws? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Well, actually, 
I hate your outfit. It doesn't match. Yeah. So. Yeah. Chew on that, colorblind bitch. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Just kidding. I love him. He's in the next room. He doesn't even know that I'm talking shit on the podcast. Well, I mean, he just heard you call someone a colorblind bitch. And like. (laughs) (laughs) Who else? Who Who else? else? Colorblind. I find it really, really charming when men are colorblind. (laughs) (laughs) I honestly, same, except for when he insists upon putting together an outfit and will not take any constructive criticism. (laughs) There's a, there's a TikToker who proposed to his girlfriend and he, and they are like pretty cute and he was like, what did you just ask me about? And she was like, I asked you if you wanted to look at color swatches for the wedding. And he turned the camera back to himself and he's like, I'm colorblind. <laughs> like, just, I don't even know what color you're describing. <laughs> and it's I so was, funny. I literally today asked, I asked Diego what he thought of this flower pot that I just got that's like, kind of like a mauve purple color. Oh. And I was like, what do you think of it? And he was like, it's okay. And then, like, silence, because we were just like, like, I think I was finishing my notes for the pod, and it was just silent. And then he just said, I kind of worry that I have bad taste in colors. Because <laughs> he's not completely colorblind. He's just, like, gets confused on a lot of them. And... He was like, I feel like I don't have good taste in colors. And I was like, what do you mean? And he was like, I just like blue. (laughs) Like, in such a sad voice, he was like, I just like blue. (laughs) Oh, my God. That's really cute. (laughs) And honestly, like, me too. Like, everything I own is blue. Everything you own is blue, Tuck. Yeah. So, he was right. Blue green, that's me. If you're gonna pick a color, like, that's a good choice. But it was just very funny, because it was like... The blue jean made blue a neutral. So, like... Yeah. They're, the neutrals are white, cream, any shade of brown. Cream? Yeah, which is off-white. I think you're a freak for calling that a separate word, <laughs> separate color. Um, olive green, I think, is a neutral. Hmm. Are we talking about, like, specifically for clothes? Yeah. Okay. I don't think it's a neutral in a in a home. You I think, think, good I think khaki. Khaki's a neutral. Oh, khaki is a neutral. But isn't that just a shade of brown? Well, isn't cream just a shade of white? No. <laughs> How is khaki? So. <laughs> They're like this. They have isn't the same relationship. Isn't khaki a fabric? What? Khaki, I think, is a fabric. It's a color. I think that khaki is the color, and chinos is technically... Is that the type of pants? What are they made of? Let's... I khaki can look is, it up. is Hindi for dust-colored. So it's a color. It says khaki is a shade. The Wait. color khaki is a light shade of tan with a slight yellowish tinge. So, the color and garment became so pervasive that khaki cloth became its own entity in the textile world, with a few defining characteristics, composed of durable cotton, twill weave, and a classic sand-like color. 
So we're both right. Yeah, that's good for us. Yeah, that <laughs> healthy loving that happens. Um. Okay. Do you want to talk about? Good I don't even have to show character. Yes. Okay. I have two very short ones. I have one kind of long one. So my first one is just boring people rejoice. This book is for you. And <laughs> here's what I'll say. I was talking about this with you last night at League, and I don't know if I said it earlier. Um, Sally Rooney, if you are reading her books just to consume them, you're not going to enjoy Beautiful World, Where Are You? But if you are, like, yeah. trying to capital R, like, read this book and, like, get something out of it, there is lots to get out of it. So if by boring yeah. people you are saying, like, people who are too highbrow to read a shitty romance, like, yeah. But, like, yeah. this book is not boring. It's, like, structured in a really interesting way. The lessons to learn from it are really interesting. Like, I don't think this is a book for boring people. I think that maybe what they meant by that was, like, that they don't really do anything. Oh. Like, there's not really anything that, like, happens in it. But also, like, what what do you want? What do you want people to do in a book? Do you want them to be, like, <laughs> like jumping out of airplanes and riding dragons and stuff? There are so many books. And most of them don't have covers that look like this one. Like, there's just a bunch of people standing. There's a bunch of white people standing on this cover. You can tell that they're not going to do shit. That's what I think. But I don't know. Maybe that's not what they meant. But I do think that, like, there is something to be said. I truly do love a book where nothing happens. And some people don't. And that's fine. So, to each their own. Can I read mine? Yes. You can read yours. So, mine is a four-star review that, like, kind of is surprising to me that it's four stars. Because it seems like it's, like more critical i don't know but it says how incredibly kinky the world is decaying our purpose is meaningless lost and inconsequential most of our fleeting existence is spent questioning and assigning meaning to things we don't understand but fuck it i want a boyfriend i want to get fucked whilst the world begins to rapidly rot around us the hilarity of this book trying to grapple with such complex concepts while remaining incredibly vapid was almost strangely endearing and to answer the question that the title poses i think the beautiful world is in us in our love for each other, in our passion, in our continuation of this strange, frustrating thing we call life. The reason why I put this in here and why I wanted to read it is because this actually made me realize why I hate the Sally Rooney discourse, which is that she is always, like, doing a kind of complex thing in her novels where she's, like, setting up this, like, problem, setting up this, like, I don't know, this, it's more than just a problem. It's, like, like, a really, like, deep-seated, like, anxiety that her characters have of some kind, whether about themselves or about the world. And then it sort of, like, through the end of it, answers it, resolves it in some way. But what people always do when they're criticizing a Sally Rooney book is they complain about the anxiety, the problem itself, and complain about, like, how it makes the characters unlikable and makes the characters, like, boring and vapid and whatever. And then they come to the same conclusion that Sally Rooney comes to at the end of the book. Like when she says, the beautiful world is in us, in our love for each other, in our passion, our continuation of the thing we call life. That's literally what the book says. 
Like, you didn't come up with that. You're not, like, unique for saying that. That's literally what the book is about. And so it annoys me when someone is like, I figured it out. Like, Sally Rooney's being stupid. This is what's going on. I'm like, yeah. She knows. She knows. She did that on purpose. It's like people, like, think that she's not writing the whole thing. Like, <laughs> like that she's just writing the parts that annoy them. And then the parts at the end where she's, like, resolving those anxieties and resolving those conflicts, they think that, like, they have come up with it on their own. And I I don't know if it's because, like, her writing is fashionable and, like, a lot of, like, young women like it. And often a lot of, like, precocious young women who, like, feel that they're very special because they have brains that work. And then they tend to, like, read a book and think that they've, like, they're the only one who understands it, Mm -hmm. which I also sometimes do. Like, I love to say, I'm the only one who understands Sally Rooney. I'm the only one who understands Adam Driver. I'm the only one who gets it, which is obviously not true. And I say that as a joke. But, like, there's so many Goodreads comments that are like this, that are like, Sally Rooney, I can write the ending of your book for you, as though Sally Rooney didn't already write the end of the book. Well, and, like, the thing about Goodreads reviews is also, like, half of them are people truly being, like, it seems like every single word in this book was chosen with care. So it's, like, weird for people to be able to acknowledge that she, like, chose very carefully how she was going to say everything, and then also Mm -hmm. for them to be, like, But it doesn't seem like she, like, really thought about it. Yeah. Um, my second Goodreads quote is, what can a therapist do for me that Sally Rooney and a cigarette on an empty stomach can't? So I think that the person (laughs) who wrote your Goodreads review probably, like, hates on principle the person who wrote my second Goodreads review. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. I I think that people, <laughs> well, I feel like the people who, like, say stupider-seeming things about Sally Rooney books honestly are being smarter. Like, someone saying something like that, or the person who put, like, the Phoebe Bridgers quote in the normal people comments. I think that that is, you're being smarter and you're getting it more than if you're, like, writing a whole essay about how stupid Sally Rooney is. Yeah. Like, the girls who get it, get it. The girls who don't, don't. And the girls who are trying to prove that they get it, don't get it. Because if you got it, you wouldn't be trying to prove that you get it. Although, we're talking on a podcast for an hour and a half, so. (laughs) Yeah, but we get it. (laughs) We get it. Yeah. And also, can I say one more thing about this book that we have not mentioned? Which is that there's a lot more sex in it, and it's written a lot better. Yeah. Yeah, it's a lot less, like, like, it seems like both people are there and enjoying it, which is different than the first two books, where they kind of just, like, I don't know. Like, sex scenes in this book last, like, a page and a half, and sex scenes in the other two books last, like, three sentences. Yeah, it literally is, like, should we have sex afterward? They got on their phones and scrolled. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
And this one actually like has smut in it. There's a Goodreads review that's four stars that says, Homegirl really wrote, wrote a smutty romance and fooled us all into thinking she had produced the next literary masterpiece. Truly iconic. Although I will say, as someone who has read a lot of smutty romance, this is like the least smutty thing I read just like this week. <laughs> so- I think this is the most slutty, this is slutty, the most smutty thing that I have read probably maybe ever. Actually, oh my god. <laughs> I don't really read smut for real, I guess, obviously. Oh, that's Maybe... kind of crazy to me. Yeah, I don't know. Like, I'm not a fan fiction girly. I don't really read... Like, it's not like I don't like it. Like, I really liked the sex in this book. I thought it was well done. I don't know. I think that I just, like, get very, like, puritanical about it sometimes. Like, I'm like, this is a book. <laughs> I didn't come here You're... for porn. <laughs> I'm like, I got this from the library. And now I'm gonna jerk off. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know. I never. That's just like I never really got on that wave, which you'd think I would have because I was like very, very on One Direction Tumblr, but. I was also very Christian at the time. I was also very Christian at the time, so I think I like had a like a an internalized uh what are those things that like people have like, you like just accountability had a- programs to oh, keep them yeah. from watching porn like on yeah. their laptops, which like if you have one of those you're a freak. But <laughs> I had, like, an internalized one where, like, if if I saw a Tumblr text post that said, imagine, I would scroll past. Oh, my God. Is that how they were doing it? <laughs> it would be, like, um, oh, yeah, they would and do, like, a bunch of imagines. fucking self-insert. Yes. Yes. Like, YN, I immediately would be, like, no, that is not of God. <laughs> I I also think YN is not of God. I simply will not be reading a Your Name fanfic. Like, yeah. No. Nope. The only other, like, smutty novel that I think I've read is Outlander. And that is a a very, very different vibe from this. Although, like, Scottish, Irish, maybe, like, that's... Maybe that does it for me, I guess. But those are the only two. I watched the first, like, season and a quarter of Outlander. But I, like, finished season one really fast, and I had to skip, like, an entire episode. The episode where Jamie is sexually assaulted, I did not watch. Yeah. And I literally was so pissed that Claire was back in the present day that I, like, quit watching. and never went back. <laughs> I've not watched the show. I just... I actually read the book when I was, uh... You know how I worked at that Christian summer camp for, like, three days? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when I was reading that book. <laughs> reading I, like, had it with porn me. in the cabin! <laughs> Literally in the bu- the top bunk. <laughs> <laughs> reading porn on a bunk bed is crazy, but that was how I was living. For three days. Ugh. For three days. Yeah. Okay. Do we have anything else to say about Beautiful World, Where Are You? This is a five-page outline of straight-up just solid text. 
That's we, so funny. Diego was reading through it and was like, you're really doing homework. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. We yeah. We were doing homework. We were doing homework. And what of it, Diego? <laughs> he's going to read this and be, or he's going to listen to this and be like, damn, y'all obsessed with me, huh? <laughs> I just keep bringing him up. But, yeah, I think that in CompCon we should talk about the Christianity of it all, because there's a lot in this one. But you said you wanted a tight 90, and we're at 93, so I think we should save it for CompCon. 93 is way better than than 117. (laughs) Yeah. (gasps) Okay. This has been All My Friends Are English Majors. Thanks for listening. You can follow us on Instagram at EnglishMajorsPod. You can email us at EnglishMajorsPod at gmail.com. Um, next week, we will be doing our comparison and contrast episode. And uh, TBD on what July will be. So we'll talk to you next week. Bye, everybody. Bye.